0: Good afternoon Sarah Heffler.
1: Good afternoon
0: Nancy Rommelman. So we, we, we yes. can't have our normal we can't have our normal good morning greeting because we have some slacker guest from the west coast who didn't want to get up at five in the morning and record with us. <laughs> I just don't know what's wrong with him. So so we are here a little later in the day. Sarah do you want to give our, our very special guest a little introduction?
1: I do. I wrote out an introduction. <laughs>
0: special.
1: Get my introduction glasses going um ethan strauss is one of the few writers who can get me to read about sports it's because ethan writes about sports and culture and his deep and often irreverent stories connect the dots on the day's trends and controversies he began his career at salon where i also worked at the time and taught him everything he knows and he went on to cover the Golden State Warriors as a beat reporter for ESPN.com and The Athletic. In 2020, he wrote a book about that team, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. But two years ago, he boldly changed tracks to launch his own sub stack, House of Strauss, which chumps out an impressive amount of content. Including regular commentary on the strange world of sports and podcasts with an eclectic group of thinkers, including sports journalists like Bamani Jones, cultural critics like Chuck Klosterman, and Substack luminaries like Matt Taibbi and Katie Herzog. No less than legendary sports broadcaster Bob Costas, a recent guest, yep. praised him for his integrity and nuance and called his show some of the best of what's in the podcast world. Ethan Strauss, Welcome to Smoking, when you got them.
2: Wow, I'm so excited to be here, and that was also a fantastic intro. It started off, it started off very Terry Gross, but then it got to the sort of energy level that uh, <laughs> you know that you generally don't get from Terry. Um, and uh, I'm hey, I I love what you guys do, and I'm excited to be here. I I like doing something that's totally different from what I usually do, and. Uh, I, okay, now now I'm fumbling and stumbling out the gate. Nobody deals well with praise. I appreciate it. Oh yeah, sorry I, I did not. Sorry, how dare you?
0: Yeah, Um, I I think that's also the most effusive or certainly longest praise that we've ever had an introduction for a guest. So Sarah, good job. Good job, Ethan. Yes. Thank you. Um, you. Well, Ethan, you've been kind enough at, at actually to have each of us on your show and you had me on your show before I even knew who Sarah was. So there Mm -hmm. you go.
2: Wow. I assumed you, were friends for a very long time. That blows my mind.
0: No, I, I was turned on to Sarah by our our dear mutual friend, Matt Welch, who forwarded me her essay, um, The Things I'm Afraid to Write About from The Atlantic, and also at the same time said, by the way, this chick just invited herself onto the fifth column. I'm like, well, clearly this is someone we need to know.
1: So I then
0: contacted her, and we just started talking, and then we did a few podcasts, and then realized we we had something so incredibly special. That we had to launch the wow. podcast, so that's how you, that
2: happens. You really do too. I mean, your chemistry oh. is such that that's that's one of the reasons why that surprises me. Um, even if it would make sense to me that you guys are friends based on your perspectives and the worlds that you've been in, I can't believe I can't believe that you you weren't friends beforehand. I mean, it's ships passing in the night considering uh, the similar milieus that you've been in.
1: Yes. We have very, very similar backstories. Yeah. I like, but I like to quote uh, my friend Gonzo from the Muppet movie. You know, there's not a word yet for old friends that just met.
2: Oh, that's beautiful.
0: Um, well, that has been a very nice circle jerk that we've just had. Yes. Um, so, we, uh, so Ethan, I have to echo what <clears throat> Sarah said about your impressive and prodigious output, which I would also say is is just killing the rest of us. And I listened to your, um, to, your, to your thank you the other day because you've been around for two years. Oh, actually, I would like to say how I actually discovered you, if I may take a moment. Oh. Um, it was, I believe, very early on after you'd moved to Substack. And you had a um, a segment about Rachel. What is her name from ESPN? Rachel, Rachel Nichols. Rachel Nichols. I remember exactly where I was, I was running on the East River, and you know, as one does, you're running and you're listening, and I kept having to stop and hit rewind because I was so incredibly fascinated by the way you were telling her story. And then I listened to it again the next day. And then you were all of a sudden on my radar and I think everybody's radar. And that was, I think, that was in 2021, I think, like super early, like maybe third podcast or something like that.
2: Yeah, it was very early. I think those were in the first few weeks. And it was definitely one where I knew in my industry it would be pretty controversial to talk about, but I'm delighted that, you discovered it and it's been so it's just been so fun to have this whole world open up to me. I feel like a bit of an interloper in it. Um, the people who write about culture and politics and every everything else, I was more so in just straight up sports world. And it's been, it's just been a lot of fun. I I've gotten to know people, I've made friends with people such as yourselves and also just been exposed to more, And that's been – I've just been delighted about how that worked out.
0: Well, something that you said at the time, I mean, I I was at the time very deeply sort of covering what was going on in Portland. We were all in the middle of a billion culture wars. And I remember at the very beginning, you were sort of speaking about like, listen, I know I've had a lane, which is sports, but I'm going to use what I'm doing now to sort of push out the bumpers. And I don't know – did you feel – at all intimidated to do it because i gotta tell you dude you do it so incredibly well and so what feels so natural and so brilliant it's like you're like and esque here kind of out of the Aww. gate i don't mean in terms of your style but just in terms of the way and i maybe she's a bad comparison of just the way you're able to like synthesize ideas and also we've got you know, we've got the Substack format where you can include video. I was actually having an absolute gas today watching all the videos that you had on the, the end of men. I mean,
1: I'd never seen,
0: <laughs> I'd never seen the one with Michael Jordan conducting. I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> now, now, not, not, not uh, Kobe Bryant. Sorry. It's, Co- great, Kobe art. Bryant.
2: Oh, it's great art.
0: Yeah. The Kobe yeah. Bryant where he's, he's like, you know, we've been hating you. Don't, don't <laughs> let us not hate you anymore. Cause he was retiring Sarah. Anyway. Um, I think you are I don't really know anybody that's doing it as well as you. Um maybe you can oh, enlighten me, but it's it's really something else, Ethan.
2: Well, you're 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 far too kind. The guy who wrote that ad by the way, um actually gave me my start down this whole journey and uh signed me up to write a blog post about uh i was working for the nba and i sort of spilled a bunch of secrets that you're not supposed to spill about being a low-level nba employee in a very specific situation and i did the blog on that guy's site and then he goes to whedon and kennedy and writes ads and um has his whole interesting saga but um so what I was doing, was it intimidating? Was it scary? Uh, yeah, it definitely was. Uh, in part because you just don't know what bridges you're going to burn and you know that you're talking about some things that you're not supposed to be talking about. But I felt compelled to do it just because I was getting frustrated. I, it's difficult for me. It, you know. Sometimes when you say things other people aren't saying, people go, oh my God, you're a contrarian. You're a contrarian. And I would think to myself, I'm not really looking at what everybody else is saying and trying to come up with the other take and sort of of zig when everybody else is zagging. It's more that I have what I actually think. And it's very frustrating knowing I'm not supposed to say it. And it builds up like a pimple or a boil. it's this (laughs) pressure, sorry to be gross, but it's the best (laughs) metaphor I can come up with. And you just want to, you just want to say the thing that's obvious. And in the case of the Rachel Nichols thing that you mentioned that I doubt most people listening even know about, um, she was fired under these circumstances where it felt as though we all had to act like she had committed a grievous crime because it's that memetic hysteria that we were living through. And it was something to do with race. And we need to, you know, she needs to be pushed out. Um, And I just felt like, most people are watching this and secretly thinking, "I don't really think she did anything wrong, and I don't want to have to pretend like I think that, or at the very least, I don't want to have to continue to shut up about it." And it's the, I think Wesley Yang said something like, "The uh, lies that I politely declined to rebut to remain in good standing grow by the day." It's that sort of sense, and. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get that out. And um I'm trying to think of other instances. The Nike end of men piece that you were you were mentioning right there. I, I feel like there was one sentence that's my favorite sentence in it, and it, it wasn't really eloquent at all. Um, it was very simple. And that essay is about how Nike they had mostly male, uh mostly male customer base, two to one, which is unusual for an apparel company. So their advertising was pitched to men in a way, and it was uh, irreverent and athletic and, and, and everything else. And they created some of the greatest ads anybody had ever seen. And even if it's corporate, it was it was really good art. And the current stuff, it's the, you know, very preachy, very ideological. And it's not good. It's cringe. And I think I just said something to the effect of we all know this new stuff's bad. Like we all know it's bad. We don't, we don't have to pretend we all know the old stuff was good and the new stuff is bad. You know, let's not really bullshit ourselves. And it's that kind of sense of, yeah, it's not fashionable to say that necessarily, but can we just say what we're all thinking? You know, it's, it's, it's simple in a way it's, it's uh, you you puff me up with all these, these compliments, but I think a lot of the success of the site is often just saying something that everybody has seen in my business and my little, uh, tranche of culture and going yeah okay i'll just say it in a reasonable way and see if it connects out there
0: and what's- you, had a,
1: you had a phrase for that called uh, i think the the kind of uh, ad that was you called cringe radical chic which i thought sounded yeah. exactly right um okay. you know sports is um sports is very populist though you know uh and yet and and it does seem like over the last few years sports has struggled to you know it is it is a competitive violent game of dominance that is yep. struggling to uh, uh you know to negotiate a society yes. that wants to be uh, egalitarian and inclusive mm-hmm. um you know i i wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the culture war has in, infected or affected sports journalism, how that's mm. happened over the last few years.
2: Yeah, that's a big question right there um, because you're really identifying the issue, this sort of tension, this incongruity, where you have a product that people are attracted to at a certain level because it's uh, Darwinian warfare and they like that it's the old world and in some sense, in most instances, they're renting a little piece of hyper masculinity. You know, there are women's sports and people like women's sports and there are situations where they are very popular. But for the most part, it's it's just a highly masculinized space and the toxic masculinity is what attracts people to it. Like uh, I would say the rotten rinds and cheese. It's uh, or whatever line they kept saying over and over again in American Hustle about the nasty bit of the perfume. And these guys, when you're at the ground level and you're in the locker rooms, you get a sense of how this is a world of cruelty, but an honest cruelty, um, unlike what you experience in the white collar world. And they enjoy humiliating their opponents. Um, That's that's what a lot of this all runs on the type of personality that often succeeds when you're being watched by 20,000 people in person, maybe millions of people on TV in a form of simulated combat is a very swashbuckling kind of guy and a guy with a lot of opinions in private who leads his life in a way that does not comport with the corporate world. And yet, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar business that has fans of all stripes and it does have to be sanitized. And so I think that's, that's a lot of what's powered the Substack is that journalists aren't often honest about this big chasm between these two worlds. And I, they will often almost do the uh, FDR can walk thing and pretend as though the, the sports level world is like the corporate world. And it's a funny thing too, because a lot of people project upon these guys. And I see people in media who often follow sports and journalists and, uh, you know, regular journalists, not the sports journalists. And they, they want these guys to be like their roommate at Yale, but that's just not, that's not how it is. These are guys who in private say things like faggot. Like that's, that's what it is that, you know, that is what it is on the ground level. I'm not defending that kind of behavior. I'm just saying that, there's something funny going on where we're all around these dudes and we sort of pretend or neglect to mention the actual, the actual environment and how the sausage really gets made. And you saw, I'll just give like an example that some people might be wondering the NBA was really big on how we love when our players express themselves, you know, Donald Trump and LeBron James went to war with one another and The commissioner of the NBA was saying that he was proud of LeBron expressing himself and lashing out at Trump, and he likes when his players do that, and the thing is, the problem is, is that he doesn't actually mean that, literally right? He, he meant it in that specific context. That's a mainstream enough in the circles he runs in viewpoint, the NBA, most of their fans vote Democrat, lashing out at Trump. That's, that's okay. That's within the boundaries. But he said, I like when my players express themselves politically and say what they really believe. Then you have, you know, a year or two later, Kyrie Irving out here talking about the vaccine being Bad and something he doesn't want to really engage in and revealing that he's a black Hebrew Israelite who believes that his people are the real Jews, uh, which, I mean, anti-Semitic opinion or just things about the Jews that would not be great and polite company, that, that is not a small cohort of people within the NBA in the locker room and talk that way, by the way. And it was all hell breaks loose. So Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, literally didn't want that to happen, And you almost, it it creates just funny scenarios where the league is espousing that they're one thing, they're trying to kind of curry favor with uh, certain groups of people, Um, they want the players to be personable, they want them to be on social media, but they really can't handle what's actually happening beneath the surface level. And these incongruities are just fertile ground for a site such as mine.
0: Uh, well, <clears throat> I don't know if it was in the past that they could handle that incongruity or if it just really was a moot point because we were not all being invited at every minute to be part of the incongruity, yes. right? I mean, back in the 1960s, yes. 1970s, like we heard, yes, Will Chamberlain apparently had sex with a thousand women, but like, that's all we know. Like it didn't really go any further. And reading the end of men and really enjoying um, clicking on all the, um, the, uh, videos that you had linked there. Um, it really just struck me that they're trying to, they're trying to force people to celebrate something that just does not resonate. It doesn't yeah. resonate with people, and we know that. It's sort of like you're saying, like, you don't have to tell me like whether I think this is commercial is good or this one is bad. I know. I look at it and I feel it. Like the one that you you uh, you linked from Guy Ritchie, which was just amazing from 2000. So good, I mean, really is, good. You watch it and you are just like boom. And then you watch the more recent ones, and you're just like, oh, droop, Flaccid. <laughs> and it's interesting yeah. that, you know, all of these are Wyden Kennedy, which is a Portland-based firm. There is no bigger, I don't think, more city – a city more emblematic in the country than, than Portland of trying to, you know, get people to all think and do the right thing. They've made all these ads. Am I wrong there? They've made yeah. all these ads, and, and they have gone from understanding that you have to give people to things they might not even know why they're responding, but they are to now like we're responding by going droop. And it's
1: like,
0: <laughs> I, 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 I listened to, I don't know, have you listened to the um the new podcast from Rick Rubin, uh, Rick Rubin called Tetragrammatron?
2: I listened to the one he did with Phil Jackson. Which was uh, great. Which, which created a lot of controversy. Oh, uh, and why? I, I found it fascinating because Phil Jackson – talked about being amused by the social justice jerseys that the players wore in the 2020 bubble playoffs and he was kind of mocking you could tell that he uh didn't think well he didn't think well of the politicization of the league and he thought it was bad and it was just one little thing one little aside at the beginning of this very long interesting conversation yeah
0: but it, that's sort of exactly what you're saying. It's like everybody's thinking it, but no one's saying it. So Phil Jackson says it. Phil Jackson isn't isn't coaching anymore. I think he's not coaching you know, the yeah. NBA anymore. He's allowed to say this. He's allowed to have an opinion. Many, many people had that same opinion. Um, I love that episode. I also love the one Owen Wilson, who I really didn't know that much about. But he had one. His most recent one is with a guy from um, Ogilvie and Mathers. His name is Rory Sutherland. And he talked about Sort of exactly this when you try to sell things to people that you think you sort of talked about it like the the whale. What did you call it in? Um, oh, the, the undecided
2: or- whale, like the big right. cohort right. that companies focus on because they've got one cohort locked down, but they have that embedded growth principle, so they dream on this undecided whale. If we could get that whale, Nancy, we could be rich, rich beyond the- our wildest dreams.
0: The weird thing with what, let's say, Wyden and Kennedy is doing now, going after this undecided whale, they already had the whale, but now they're going to go after what turns out to be actually a very small minnow of, of, the, <laughs> of who their commercials are actually going to appeal to. Meanwhile, the people that have like stuck with them for 40 years, I mean, I don't know if it's going to disenfranchise them, but it's not entertaining them.
2: Yeah, it's not. But then again, there are so many aspects of this because the conservatives will say get woke, go broke. But there are some companies that have a near monopolistic hold uh, in their respective sector. So I don't even know if it's possible for Nike to go broke, which might inform why their ads have gotten bad. Back when it was more competitive, they actually had to resonate. Uh, Right now they can do a pretty bad job and they can still they can still make it through. But I totally agree with you. I mean, one ad that comes to mind is one that they did around the time of the uh, Olympics and the women's national basketball team where the ad it's this teenage girl. uh, She's got, you know, hair in an interesting way. She's, you know, she, she's a cool kid and she's sneering at the men's basketball team to pump up the women and talking about all of history is dominated by men. That's just the patriarchy she says. And, you know these like women on the women's basketball team they make alexander the great look like alexander just the uh, just alexander the okay um and it's really hammering home this strange uh misandry <laughs> message to pump up the the women's basketball team that a lot of women frankly don't follow and aren't interested in and i really don't know i don't think there's a huge population of women who go, yeah, I hate men and I love watching the women's national basketball team. And I'm going to buy Nike. That doesn't, that doesn't really seem like a big cohort and it's not a good ad and it's It's utterly forgettable, but for our mention of it here and you mentioned the Guy Ritchie ad, see that one's interesting to me to, to identify because it's amazing art. Just, it was a technical achievement. It's incredible pov and pov a while ago i can't remember if it was 2007 around that eight, era or, yeah it, around that era and it's tracking the trajectory of somebody who comes up and makes it in big time european soccer and from the moment where he is in the minor leagues uh whatever they call it and he uh, he you know kicks a free kick and arson wenger Uh, The, you know, uh, storied Arsenal manager is watching him and you're watching him go through the trajectory and um, of playing at the club level with these other stars. But what it is, is a straight male boyhood fantasy realized from the POV where he's, you know, he's dating the models. He's signing some breasts. He's uh sports car. Yeah, he's impressing his father with the sports car that he just bought. And I think even if you're not a straight man who's into soccer, it resonates because you can recognize that as a real fantasy that people have, (laughs) that that's a real thing, That's, that's real art. And even if you're not you know, even if you're not into it, it's kind of like uh, Sarah, when we talked about when I was a little kid at aftercare and I read, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. It's still interesting yes. to to look at how the other half lives. And it, it's intriguing to me that there's just no capability to make that ad, even though that's obviously still a resonant fantasy that the people who are making the ads, it, it's not just about getting traction. It's not just about communicating it's a value system and it's not the values to sort of reify that traditional advertiser. i'm not saying you have to have the uh, the titties get signed i'm not saying that's a necessity in a modern ad um like in the director's cut Aww. but <laughs> that was quite risque for a nike ad that part of it yeah. but you know it's it's interesting to look at the ads that really worked that could never happen again and then you ask well why could they never happen again why couldn't they make the chicks dig the long ball ad about the home run heroes again. You know, what's going on with that? It's that weird thing where people go, they'll kind of laugh knowingly about a piece of culture from 10, 20, 30 years ago about how much they enjoyed it. And then they'll go, yeah, they couldn't do that one again. And yet they buy into the idea. That's a good thing. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a bad thing.
0: It shrinks. It shrinks the world. Hey, I have a totally weird question. I was in, um, New Orleans earlier in the week and I was hanging around with a gal that I was working with and she said that she knows someone whose goal in life is to be a major league baseball wife. She's already dated two major league players. And I, I don't know if there's a coterie of women that go around and do that because that would be kind of weird because they might be your competition. But have you ever heard of this? That like, Uh, it's just like a goal.
2: I've heard far more cynical versions of trying to trap a man in the NBA. And I think it's it's good to know about because I think sometimes we'll look at a culture, you could look at the NBA culture and hear the way they talk about women in private and go, these guys are really misogynistic. And there would be it wouldn't necessarily be inaccurate in many instances. But then you also have to remember that they relate to women in a way that's different from the way I've related to women in my life because there are literally women plotting and scheming to trap them in the most pregnant. cynical. Yeah, they get pregnant in the most cynical ways possible. You know, there's these forums, Lipstick Alley, where uh, groupies will trade.
0: Hello, if you have Got'em listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now. She could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, We're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeumpodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms, again, to get the full fig that is smoke Thanks.